Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, so let's imagine after this, you're going to go to lunch. It's not hard to imagine. And you're going to go to your favorite restaurant. All right, so you pick your favorite place that you like to go. And as you are walking up to the restaurant, you see in the front window a giant banner. Like these people are making a statement. And as you read it, it says maybe make America great again. Don't you MAGA people clap right now. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, uh-uh, okay. Or it says finish the wall, build it nice and tall. Or it says, defund the police. Or it says, my body, my choice. Or it says, love is love. Pick which one offends you the most out of those, okay? (laughs) Whichever one it is, picture it's in your favorite restaurant, front window. What is your natural response to seeing that? So maybe it's, um, maybe it's you're an activist and you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to boycott. Not only am I not coming back here again, but I'm going to make sure none of my friends do. We may even have a little protest out in the front. Or maybe your response is, I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk to that manager. That's right, Karen. I'm getting in there and I'm going to talk to him. <laughs> you better take that down. Or maybe... Your response is just ignore it, keep going. I like the food, I don't like the, pol- the politics, but whatever. Or maybe you think this is a great opportunity for me to engage with these people. Is they don't think like I do, and so maybe we can have a conversation to where we can better understand one another, and I might be able to influence them, and maybe they can give me some insight. Or if you're a person of means, you think, not only am I going to go to another restaurant and not come back to this one, I am going to, I'm going to start a restaurant right next door with the opposite sign as them. I'm going to show them. Whatever your response is, is probably your natural disposition when you have your beliefs and they come into conflict with something in culture. And that's really what this series is all about, is how do we, as Christians, how do we live faithfully in a culture that may not necessarily agree with us? What do we do when there is conflict? And so the series is called Live Differently, and and that's kind of the, the basic answer is, well, we're supposed to live differently. But the problem is there's so many ways to live differently. And so each week we've been going through different ways that Christians have answered this question, as what does it look like to live differently within uh, a culture that doesn't agree with you? And so we've, we've, we kind of laid it out the first week and we said, well, there's really four general ways. The first one is retreat, is Christians must, uh, did I just sound, do I sound different all of a sudden? Or is that just me? All right. First one is uh, retreat, is Christians uh, have said, you know what? We think that culture is a mess. And so what we're going to do is we're going to totally disconnect from culture. We're just going to retreat into our own subculture, sub-communities. We're going to make our own ecosystem, and we're going to live within, within that. And that's what we talked about last week. And then the next view is the kind of the polar opposite, which is we're not going to retreat. We're going to resist. Is, yeah, culture is a mess, and we're going to step up. We're going to push back against the, the darkness and the immorality, and we're going to stand firm. Or there's the stay relevant. Is if we want to have a voice within culture, we have to be relevant to culture. 
Or finally, it's renew. We're going to embed ourselves in all the different parts of culture, and we're going to renew it from within. And so each week we're going through one of those. Last week was retreat. And this week we're going to talk about what does it look like to resist culture? What does it look like to be a, a, to, to be a, um, a resistance in a culture that is heading in the wrong direction? So uh, last week we kind of evaluated how the people who retreat see culture. And the, the people who resist, they kind of see it the same way. Is when they look at culture and they look at the trends, they think that it is in a moral and spiritual freefall. That the, the thing that made the West and that made America and all that we value in it, you thought I was going to say make it, make, no, uh, don't worry, I'm going to offend everybody by the end of the day today, so just take a breath. Um, the things that made us the country that we are, are, uh, are the Judeo-Christian values and beliefs that we hold. And so as those things are being taken out of public life, and not even just being taken out, but really rejected, is um, we, are f- we are in a, f- a free fall as a country. And so they would point to things like this. They would say, well, there's been an attack on families and religious freedom and traditional values and views on gender and sexuality, uh, on freedom, democracy, the sanctity of life. And so their response as they see culture heading in this direction is, we are going to resist. And what they mean by this is, Jesus called us to be salt and light. And so we're going to step into culture, and we're going to be a preserving presence. Is we're, going to be, we're going to be the resistance as things try to pull in one direction. We're going to step in, and we're going to pull it back the other direction. And so if last week <clears throat> the answer was retreat, those people would be cultural pacifists. This week we have cultural warriors, we are going to change culture. And the way that um, the way we've seen this happen in the scriptures is, and I think the, the clearest example is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you know that story, it was when the, um, the people of Israel were in Babylon, Babylonian exile. And, um, and these three young men, they were good citizens. They were upstanding citizens, except when it came to where they were uh, commanded to bow down to the king and worship him. They couldn't do this as faithful Jews. This would be idolatry. So they said, nope, we can't do it. The punishment was that they would get thrown into a fire. They do, except they don't burn up. It's miraculous. God saves them. They were the epitome of a resistance to the culture. Well, today, the way that we see this kind of resistance is, um, at least on a large scale, it plays out in culture wars. And if you don't know what culture wars is, you've heard the term, but maybe you kind of loosely understand what it is. The basic idea of a culture war is you have two worldviews that are, that are fighting for the dominant place in culture, like the dominant worldview. And so in America, you have what would be the conservative, traditional, you know, religiously orthodox views. And then on the other side, you have the more liberal, progressive views. And they see the world completely different. The way that they understand values, the way they understand the future and the past, they're almost in complete opposition to one another. And so as these two are competing for the dominant narrative in culture, they come into conflict. And this is where you get the culture wars from. And the way that it's fought is through um, a cultural narrative, it's through mass media, it's through entertainment, it's through academics, uh, and more and more, it's through politics. And you see lots of different tactics that are used. Sometimes it's through humor and entertainment. Sometimes it's through coercion and lies and deception. Really, whatever it takes to win is what you'll do to win the culture war. And the culture war seems to be at a boiling point. We see it intensifying every single year, especially in the form of politics. And so this person from the Christian perspective says, we are going to win the culture war by fighting. 
primarily through political means. And so a clear example of this would be in the 1980s, and if you're my age or younger, you may not know about this, but if you're a little bit older, you lived through this, maybe you're even a part of it, there was this thing called the moral majority. And what the moral majority was, it was a Christian lobby group led by Christian leaders and pastors, and they rallied Christians together by the millions in order to push policies and get politicians in places of power in order to bring about change. And so there was millions of people involved, tens of millions of dollars, and they were fairly successful at it. So I think there's some positives to, to this view, to this view that the answer to culture is resistance. First one is that the scripture clearly tells that we are supposed to personally be uh, resistant to culture, or at least the, the negative parts of it. Ephesians six thirteen says this, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. See, we're, we're always tempted to give in, whether it's personally to some kind of sin or, or some temptation, or just to go along with the current of what everybody else is doing. And the scripture is very clear that we personally, we are supposed to stand firm, that we're supposed to resist that pull in our life. It also says that we're supposed to be salt and light, and we're be a preserving and restraining presence in the world. And so we as Christians, part of our responsibility is to act as the national conscience. It's as we are led by the Holy Spirit and we have him dwelling within us and we have the scriptures to guide us. When the culture starts to go in a bad way, and that's kind of the natural disposition of humanity is to not, not necessarily get better, at least morally. As we start to head in the wrong direction, we're supposed to be a presence that says, hold on, time out. I don't think we want to go that way. Because that way is going to lead to destruction. Let me show you a better way forward. Let me show you the way that, that God intends for us to flourish. And so we're supposed to be that, that presence in the world. And part of being that presence and trying to give moral and spiritual insight into the world is there's going to be an intersection between biblical and moral and political and cultural issues. There's, there's going to be a time in which those two come into contact. And so to live faithfully as a Christian, there are times that we have to be political. So I remember, um, this was years and years ago, the first time that I, I gave this illustration, or I gave an illustration, and I said, hey, and I just referenced some like five cultural hot topics. I didn't even talk about them. I just said, here's some things that people are struggling with. And one of the things that I said was abortion. I said, this is a topic that has a lot of people heated on both sides. And I got so much hate mail. I didn't even talk about it. I just referenced, here's an issue that people that debate. And I even had to sit down with some folks who I knew who were saying, we're leaving the church over this. I said, over what? And they said, well, not necessarily what you may or may think about this issue, because we didn't talk about it at that point. They said, because we don't want to go to a church that is so overtly political. And I said, well, that's a new accusation for me overtly political. And you, you kind of heard my take on, on politics is I don't really give you my take on politics, but there are these things I try to explain. There is this intersection between the moral and biblical and the political and cultural. And so when those two come into contact, I'm going to have to speak about those. And so you perceive them as political, but I perceive them as, no, that's a Bible thing. Now, there may be political implications for it, but this is a Bible thing that I'm addressing. Also, um, we are called to be salt and light, and part of that is by speaking truth into culture. 
Uh, In Acts 4, Peter and John, they were arrested because they're causing all this civil unrest. And the leaders throw them in jail and they say, you know what, you need to stop this. This is causing chaos. People are starting to, 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 to talk badly about us. They're starting to riot. They're starting. And their response is, sorry, but we can't do that. They say, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. You know what? It may be uncomfortable, but we're going to have to speak some truth into our culture, especially when it comes to gospel truths, is we're going to have to speak those into, and it's going to be, people may not like it, they may be like, hey, hey, why don't you just keep that in your, your, pub, or your private life? Your faith is your faith. But wait a minute. If this is truth, I've got to speak truth into the culture. We're also called to love our neighbor, and we may be able to do that through political means. Tim Keller says, ignoring politics entirely and disengaging from the democratic process would not be effectively loving our neighbors, he argues. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would now call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political is to be political. What he says is, look, there's moral issues, there's biblical issues, and to ignore them is a political stance in its own. And so you just can't avoid it. Politics are here, they're a part of our life, and we're just going to have to deal with it. He says that one of the ways that we can love people best is by advocating and voting for policies that are going to help other people. Now, that's all the good stuff about politics and and the, the, the usefulness of politics from a Christian perspective, but there's a lot of dangers as well. The first thing that I think that, that, that I think could be an issue when we come from this Christian perspective of resistance is what Romans 13 says, is that we're supposed to submit to our authorities. We do not like this. I'll read it for you so you get mad at Paul, not me. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. (laughs) Okay. This is easier when the people that I like are in charge. (laughs) Quite a bit more difficult when it's the other people that are in charge. And he doesn't say... Okay, as long as the party that you voted for is in charge, submit to authority. I wish it said that. Would be much more convenient for me and you, but that's not what it says. What it says is that God has placed these authorities in our lives, and our job, as long as it does not conflict with our faith, is to obey and pray for them. Ugh, I know I heard a grunt right in the front row. They just went, ah, I don't like that part. Ignore this one. This is, you can get this, you can get rid of this part. It's funny, I talk to people and they get so fired up about politics and what's happening and the things that they don't like. And they go, you know what? If I were in charge, then I wouldn't be doing this and I would be doing this. And I go, wait, are they calling you asking? Have they called and said, do you want to be in charge? That would be, yes. Then get prepared, man. Get your policies in order. Let's go. Oh, they haven't, they haven't called? No one's asking your opinion. Oh, well, all right. (laughs) See, unless you were called to help lead the country or even our state, um, your job is to obey and pray. And here's the good news, is you're not accountable for the faithfulness of our nation. 
you're accountable for your faithfulness within the nation. And so you can rest easy knowing that no one is calling and asking your opinion. God is not going to say, how could you let America make these decisions? God's going to say, now, were you obedient? Were you faithful? No, no, I don't want to talk about them. I'm going to deal with them. No, no, I'm talking about you. What did you do? See, we're accountable for ourselves. We're not accountable for everybody else. We're also called to be salt, not salty. <laughs> Sometimes how you fight is as important as what you're fighting for. Let me say that again. Sometimes how you fight is as important as what you are fighting for. And here's how I know this. I've gotten in a couple arguments with my wife over the years. I don't want to say that I'm right a majority of the time, but that might be the truth. <laughs> and as we are in a discussion, and I have come up with all of my reasons why I am right, and I am arguing with her, there is at some point, I hope she realizes, he's right. He's right. In fact, there have been moments in which we both know as we're arguing, I'm right, aren't I? I'm right. And yet, by the end of that conversation, I'm the one apologizing. How does that happen? I was right. You know I was right. Everybody knows I was right. And yet I'm having to say, I'm sorry. Well, it's because you can be right on the issue and wrong in your attitude. See, sometimes it's not just about the issue that we're fighting for. It's, it's how are we fighting for these things? It seems that um, one of the downfalls of the moral majority that I mentioned in the 80s was not that they were wrong about the things that they were fighting for. They're biblical things. Yeah, I'm with you. The issue was, is how they were fighting for those things. So there's a famous article in Time Magazine, and it's with Ellen DeGeneres. And she is telling the world that she is gay. And through this interview, they're talking about what this means for her life. And at the very end of the interview... The, uh, the interviewer says to her, did you know that Jerry Falwell, who's the head of the moral majority, he has called you Ellen Degenerate? That's the only thing people remember about the moral majority today. It's not the things that they fought for, good or bad. It's not their policies. Not, no, no. What they remember is they called people names that they disagreed with. Because it's not just about what you're fighting for, it's how you're fighting for it. And so we have to remember, if we want to truly make change, it's not going to just be about the things that we stand for. It's going to be about how we stand for those things. Here's the point. We're not at war with our ideological opponents. We're at war for them. One of the dangers about engaging in political and cultural issues is we start looking at other people as the enemy instead of ideas and ideologies. And so we start fighting people. But what we have to remember is we're not fighting against people. We're fighting for people because the whole motivation behind our stances and our views is we believe that this is going to bring about the most human flourishing. This is what is best for not just me, but is best for you. And so my motivation as I'm pursuing these things is not to defeat you. It's actually to, to, to create a better life for you because this is the life that I believe God has intended for you. This totally changes the way that we engage people when we start fighting for them instead of against them. So about a week and a half ago, my wife gave me the uh, privilege 
So I had, I had uh, quite a week, the week and a half, where Amy put all my favorite things in one week. Disneyland. Um, a concert. And Hamilton. With her parents. And um, they're great people. I love them. But... Uh, so I got to go do all these things, and it was, it was interesting because uh, we surprised her mom with uh, Hamilton tickets, and I say we surprised, my father-in-law surprised, and we said it were from us. And, um, and we went to this thing, and before, and you probably know this, it's in L.A., and so there's a lot of uh, things that you have to do before you go. So you either have to have a vaccine um, card, passport thing, or you have to sh- have a negative test, and you have to show that at the door. So, okay, we get all the kind of, we go there, we show them, we get in the thing, and, and this is what was surprising to me is I walk in, and um, all the staff of this facility, very beautiful place, are holding signs that says, please cover your nose as well, or something to that effect. I went, okay, all right. And I have glasses, and, and one of the things that happens is my, as I have my mask on, my glasses fog up, and I can't see where I'm going. <laughs> and so I sometimes like bring it down to like, you know, defog. And the first time I did that, I mean, I was impressed of how they were just on it, is they went, uh, sir? <laughs> Bingo, I got you. All right. I thought, okay, maybe it's just this person. It happened like three or four more times, and they were like very serious about it. Like, uh, excuse me, sir, um, uh, nose please, nose please. And I just went, ugh. Like, whether you agree or disagree, I'm like, your attitude stinks, dude. I can smell it through this mask, your attitude is bad. <laughs> And so here's what I wanted to ask them. I wanted to ask them, are you concerned about me? Like, are you, is that why you want my mask on and you're concerned if I have a, a vaccine and all that? Are you concerned about me? Because if you're concerned about me, there's a way better way to go about this. See, I prefer a carrot over a stick. And so if you want to discuss with me instead of yell at me, I'm open to discussion. We could talk about that. If you really want what's best for me, let's, let's persuade Let's have a conversation about it. But if you just want to make a point, if you just want a virtue signal, well, then just keep yelling at me. See, there's a difference there. Are you fighting for me or are you fighting against me? Because if you're fighting for me, there's a much better way to go about this. If you're fighting against me, just keep yelling then. And that's the difference between being a salt and salty. Is are you fighting against or are you fighting for people? If you're fighting for people, You'll, you'll be assault. But if you're fighting against people, you'll just be salty. We're also called to be a witness, not just win. Our ultimate goal is to tell people about Jesus. That's what, we, that's what we really want. We want to bring about human flourishing, and we want to introduce people to Jesus. And so there will be moments in which we win, and we can be a witness through winning. Is There are valid reasons why we want to win. We believe this is what is best for our country, our community, our family. And so we'll fight for those things. And if we do win, you know what is, is worse than losing? Losing to someone who is a complete jerk about winning. Like There's these videos online in which um, after these last two elections, it's a compilation of all of the people um, who were on the losing side and them just losing their minds because they lost. And it's just people watching, the people who, who voted and won, um, watching their opponents lose and them just drinking their tears. Like they're crying, ah, oh, and then you can just see the comments like, oh, it's delicious just watching them so sad. 
And I just go, ooh, that's not a good way to win. Nobody likes that. Because when, when you win, if you, if you do win and you want to be a witness, then your attitude's going to be different. It's going to be sympathetic. It's going to be inviting. It's going to be welcoming. You also can be a witness when you lose. Let's be honest. Nobody likes to lose. Um, everybody wants to win, but there will be those times when you do lose. In the last couple of elections, on both sides, I've been very disappointed in how the other side has lost. Because they kind of lost it when they lost. I thought, well, Christians, we got to do better. Because even in the moments when we don't win things that we want to win, we can still, we can still be a witness in those moments. In fact, we can probably be more influential in the times that we lose than the times that we win. Because you think about Jesus' ministry. His ministry was all about winning through losing. How did Jesus gain power? By giving it up. How in, how in order did, or how did, he, how did he influence people? By submitting. The first shall be last. His whole ministry is about, I'm going to lose for your sake. And so we can be a witness by the way that we lose. So my son is uh, in Friday Night Lights. He's, uh, he's eight. I had to check with Amy last night. He's, <laughs> nope, he's seven. He's seven. Uh, he's in that range somewhere. Uh, just depends what team he needs to be on. <laughs> it's like, is he seven or eight? I don't know. Let's look at the team. Yeah, he's seven. Um, anyway, no. And so he played on, and he loves it. He just started, and, and he thinks it's great. And he had a great first game of the season last week. I mean, he just destroyed, which I expect nothing less as a Surratt. And uh, he gets it. But the whole week, he was just like, Dad, did you see my touchdown? Can we watch that video again? Let's watch that. Oh, did you see me juke that kid? And I'm like, dude. And so he gets, is, is just going, and I'm excited for him. This is awesome. But there was a part of me that was hoping he would lose this last game. You know, because I'm like, bro, you've got to learn how to lose, man. Because it's got to happen. Now, he didn't, again, Surratt, but you are going to eventually, you're, <laughs> you're eventually got to lose, and you got to lose well. Nobody likes to see a winner that is, is bragging, that is full of himself. You've got to go out there, and when you lose, you can lose well. Because you know it's going to be better for your long-term character? Not that you win every game as a seven-year-old. It's that you, you know how to lose well. And so I think that's something that we've lost here as a nation is, is we've forgotten how to lose well. And that's an opportunity for Christians. Christians can be people who instead of when we lose, we're bitter and angry and spiteful and divisive. We see it as yet another opportunity for us to be a witness to the world. See, as a witness, we need to represent Christ well. We live in a culture that is not going to just show up for church. That time is gone. There used to be a time in our nation in which church doors would open, everybody would go, it was great. Or they would at least be open to it if they thought that there was something beneficial. Now we're in a time in which people are going to come to church for the first time and it's going to cost them something. Because they don't want to be associated with some of our views and some of our beliefs and some of the stigmas that go along with what they perceive as Christianity. And so it's going to, it's going to be a hurdle for them to come to this place. And so... The, the, the scary part about this is the only way that they're going to come into this building for the first time is because of you. Like you are going to be, so you're going to be the reason why they show up here if they do. It's not because we have great music or because the sermon's good every other week, 50% of the time-ish, you know, whatever. Um, it's not going to be those things. It's going to be because 
you represented Jesus well to them, and they wanted to know more about it. And so here's the question. What are you going to spend your moral capital on? Like, you have a certain amount of moral capital influence that you, got, you, you get to have on people around you. What are you going to spend it on? Are you going to spend it on your political opinions and cultural beliefs, or are you going to spend it on trying to influence people for Jesus? Because again, you can have your opinions. That's great. You should. But what do you, you have a limited amount of moral capital. What are you going to spend it on? You have to decide. I said the first week, one of the dangers of spending our moral capital on political or cultural issues is if you're not careful, people will see your politics and opinions as synonymous with your faith. And they're not going to reject Jesus because of his claims, but because of yours. And that's scary. We have, a, we have an opportunity. We have an influence on the people around us. What are you going to use that for? To persuade them to vote a certain way or to think about this issue? Or are you going to persuade them, influence them to come to Jesus? So, question, should Christians resist culture? Yes. No. Maybe. I don't know. It's complicated, to be honest with you guys. I've been studying this all week. I don't really know where to land on this one. So pray about it. No, um, okay, no, I'll give you something. Is uh, Jesus kind of gives us some insight into this. Is there is this, um, there is, there is this, this scene in which Jesus is confronted with the cultural controversies of his day. And, and so the, the story is, is that it's in the last week of Jesus' life. He rides into Jerusalem. He's kind of claiming that he is the king. He goes into the temple. He cleanses it, throws out the money changers. He's proclaiming this is his house and God's house. And so he's kind of equating himself with God. And he's just getting people all fired up. And the religious leaders see him and they go, all right, this guy's got to be stopped. And so what they do is they try to come up with a series of questions that will trap him, that will turn the people against him, because he's got way too much power and way too much influence. And I think, how are we going to stop them? I know. We'll get him to talk about politics, because there's nothing more divisive than politics. So let's make him talk about politics. And so here's what they say. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Herodians. My dad corrected me on that last night. Isn't it nice when you work with your family? Anyway, Herodians. Herod. Ians. Okay. So there's a, there's a bunch of like different Jewish sects in the first century. And so you have like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which by the way, if you ever go to seminary, they will tell you this joke 1,000 times. I, I'm almost embarrassed to repeat it because it's so lame, but here's what they tell you. You know, there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees. You know what the difference is? Pharisees believe in heaven. Sadducees don't. That's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> yep, that's when I quit. No. Uh, so, Pharisees, Sadducees, uh, Herodians, 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 Herodians. There it is. Essenes and Zealots. So they all have like various political and theological distinctions and um, beliefs that they hold, and that's why there's all these divisions amongst them. And so these two different groups, they come up to Jesus, and they're going to try to undermine his influence by asking him a political question. Here's what they say. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So they're just buttering them up. They're trying to set them up because they're, they're really trying to get a, a gotcha question. 
Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So what they're talking about here is a very specific tax. Not just taxes in general, because they had a lot, but they were talking about this poll tax. And this was implemented in 6 AD, and what it was is it's a tax, a very small amount. It's a denarius, so it's, anyone can pay it. It wasn't about the tax. It was about what the tax represented. It was a tax because you had the privilege of living under Roman rule, just rubbing salt in that wound. Ah, we get to lord over you, and you're going to pay for it. And so there was a rebellion that took place. Judas the Galilean, he starts to rally up the Jewish people, and he says, you know what? We are going to have an armed resistance. This is like pagan, godless worship that they're making us do. And so we're going to rebel against it. And they do. And there's this uprising, and they go into the temple, and they cleanse the temple, and they kick the foreigners out. And then very quickly, Rome steps in, not known for their sympathy, and capture them and execute them. And so they put down their rebellion pretty quick. But as a result of this rebellion, there was this new sect called the Zealots. And the Zealots thought, we're not only going to, um, we're not only going to, to rebel against, but we're going to be the resistance. We're la resistance, right? They weren't French, but I just, that's what I think of when I hear them. Um, we're going to actively push back against Rome. And so Jesus is speaking to all of these different groups. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to find out do you think we should pay the tax or not? Because then it's going to tell us what political party you are a part of. Whose side are you on on this issue? Are you a zealot? Do you believe that we should resist the Romans? That we should push back, maybe even violently against them? Because if you do, this kind of doesn't look good on the whole turn the other cheek and love your enemies talk that you've been having. Or do you think, uh, are you a scene where Essenes, they were, um, they, that was the group that John the Baptist was a part of, and they were people who lived out in the wilderness. They rejected the culture, and they said, we're going to go, and we're going to do our own thing. Or are you a Herodian? Do you think that we should partner with Rome, and that we should allow them to rule over us? Because if you do, your whole ministry thing isn't really about the kingdom of God. It's about politics, and it's about power, just like everybody else. Or are you a Pharisee or a Sadducee? Do you think that we should reject the rule of Romans? Because if you do and you say it out loud, you know what's going to happen. You're going to be executed. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? See, Jesus has, a, a, he has an out here. What he could do when he's confronted with this very difficult question is what politicians do. <laughs> Next question. Ah, uh, that's a great question. I'll think about that. He can just, he can avoid it. But he doesn't. Here's what he says. He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So he picks up this coin. It's a silver coin. It has the picture of Tiberius Caesar on it. And with an inscription that says on one side, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, it says Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. Such an irony, right? It says, son of God, high priest, and a picture of Caesar on it. And Jesus is holding it. He says to them, all right, well then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. So Jesus, are we, are we supposed to resist or are we supposed to pay? Yeah. 
because he's aiming at different groups. He says to the Essenes, you can't just retreat from culture. You can't run. You've got to engage. He says to the Herodians, he says, your ultimate allegiance must never be to Caesar or to any other nation or party. The zealots, your job is not to simply resist, but to contribute to the Pharisees. You have to submit to God and the authorities he has placed over you. See, what Jesus does is he refuses to play by the rules. He's not going to be forced into our parties. He's not going to be forced into a corner. He's not going to play by the cultural systems that we have set up. It's funny, everybody thinks that Jesus would be a part of their political party. Doesn't matter what party you're a part of. Republicans go, well, you know, Jesus was always right, so <laughs> I go right, you know. That's a... Or Jesus, you know, Jesus would be a Democrat. I don't know if you've read, but he was kind of like a, kind of like a healthcare vending machine. I mean, he was giving out free healthcare to everybody. There was lines of people, and he goes, you don't have to pay, you know, insurance, that doesn't matter, let's go. Let's go, just heal him, just heal him. Right, he's giving out food to everybody. I mean, he's just, he's a Democrat. Libertarians come and they go, um, excuse me, John 8, 32. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Leave me alone, man. Get out of my business. Jesus was clearly a libertarian. Doesn't matter if you're red or blue, Jesus thinks just like you. But here's the truth. Jesus would not fit into any party comfortably. He wouldn't. He, he would, if you ask Jesus, now what, what party are you affiliated with? He would say, yeah, I'm not comfortable with any of them. Because there's things that I like and that I dislike about all of these views. Now, what I'm not saying here is I'm not saying that there aren't views or, or parties that you can affirm more of their values and beliefs than another. Or you can't affirm certain beliefs in one party or another. What I'm saying is Christians cannot fit comfortably into any party. Because there is no Jesus party here. And Jesus is for Jesus. And so here's a couple things I think we can learn uh, from his interaction here when we're trying to navigate our world. Oh, I'm out of time already? Yeah, kids can wait. Okay, I'll be quick. Here's the first thing. He resisted simplicity. Jesus knows what the real issues are. He knows what the thing is behind the thing. It seems like such a simple question. Pay taxes, yes or no? And he goes, no, no, no. See, here's the thing. You're trying to get me to answer a simple question, but this isn't a simple question. This is a nuance. This is a complex issue. I know what's going on behind the thing. And so when you try to put me into a category and make me answer a simple question, I'm not playing your game. We got in trouble last year for doing this is uh, people pressured us and were, were pretty angry at us because we don't, and this happens all the time, um, we don't post about their issue, the thing that we should post about. How could you not? This is a biblical issue. You've got to understand. And why don't you post this picture and this hashtag and this? And I go, um, because it's not just about that thing. It's about what's behind the thing. So last year, there was one thing and everybody's posting it and we didn't post it. And they went, what's your deal? Do you not believe this? And we go, no, of course we believe this. But we don't believe the thing behind the thing. For the, in this circumstance, there was an organization. We can't align with them. That They're against biblical principles. And so we have to discern what's behind the thing. And so here's kind of a, 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 our, our guiding principle is we are slow to post and quick to research. You should try it sometime, you guys. <laughs> slow to post. 
or just delete it. That's fine. I don't know. Anyway, um, all right, let me, let me fast forward a little bit. Here's the thing is uh, Jesus was shrewd when it came to political and cultural issues. He would, he would not give a simple statement. He wouldn't play by the games, which is so unlike Jesus' character, by the way, because Jesus is bold when it came to claims about himself and about God. Is he would say things like, um, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to uh, meet your heavenly father, it's going to be through me and me alone. He was pretty explicit about heaven and hell and sin and salvation. I mean, he, that's what got him killed, right? But then when it came to these issues, he was nuanced. He was shrewd when he started to discuss them. Because he knew the difference between cultural and theological issues. Now, I don't care if you are for or against or have some in-between opinion about the Second Amendment. That's, not, I, I, that's a cultural issue. That's not in the Bible. You can have your opinion, and I think you should. And I think it should be researched and thought through. But you got to know the difference between a theological issue and a cultural issue. See, Jesus was bold when it came to theological issues, but shrewd when it came to political ones. The other thing is he resisted political primacy. Jesus was looking at the, co uh, the coin and he says, whose image is on this? And they reply, Caesar. Now, if they were thinking on their feet, or, and then he adds at this and he says, okay, well then give it to Caesar. Like, you know, it's his, he minted it. It's got his picture on it. He owns it. Give it back to him. But then he adds this little thing at the end. He says, and give to God what is God's. And if they were thinking on their feet, what they should have responded with, well, what is God's? And Jesus would have said, well, whose image are you made in? Well, then give to God what is God's. You're made in his image. You belong to him. Give your life over to him. See, what Caesar really wanted was not that coin back. It meant nothing to him. He minted it in the first place. What he really wanted was the people's allegiance, their worship. But that was the very thing that they could not give because that only belongs to God. And so here's what Jesus did. He always put the kingdom first. Whenever he was discussing, whenever he thought of his agenda, he thought of his schedule, he thought of his religion, it was always about putting the kingdom first. He wasn't interested in building the kingdom of Israel or of Rome. He was about building the kingdom of God. Here's what Tony Evans said uh, years ago, and I remembered it, and I wrote it down. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. That should be our, our goal as well, is we, we're not here to take sides. Now, there may be sides that we can think is going to help pursue human flourishing, and it's going to help bring about uh, more good for people, and that's all great. But our ultimate goal is not to pick sides. It's to make Jesus the top priority. We're kingdom-first people. And so here's the question I want to finish with. If and when you decide to engage in these cultural and political issues, I think the filter, the grid, the question that we should ask first and foremost is, am I putting the kingdom first? Because if we are really being honest, like we're, we're, we're really thinking about this question of putting the kingdom first, I think it's going to possibly change our opinions and our views. Because when I put myself or my family or my friends first, I may see one potential solution, and it just, it seems right because it's going to help me. But that's the wrong question. The question is not what do I want, what's best for me and my friends. The question is what is best for everybody else? 
Because when I ask about kingdom first principles, I'm going to ask, okay, well, what's better for everybody else? Or what's going to help us out most in the long run? What's going to bring about the most human flourishing? Not what is going to help me this year in my bottom line, but what is going to help bring human flourishing within our world? The other question, uh, or when I ask this question is, it may have uh, the effect of making me pause before I engage. Before I fire off a post or before I engage in conversation, before I insert myself, I might go, you know what, am I putting kingdom first? Because like this is the first time I'm meeting this other parent at soccer practice, and I'm not sure they're ready for my opinion about immigration. I don't know if I need to talk about universal health care right now. Maybe I should start with, I got a church. How about you? I don't know. That seems like a kingdom first question. It may even make you, you know, I think it will make you change the way that you engage with those that you disagree with when I am a kingdom first person. Because it could be somebody whom I just totally disagree with. I think their views are not just wrong, they may even be evil. And yet, when I come from a kingdom first perspective, I have to remember I am not fighting against somebody. I am fighting for them. And the way that God looks at this person, whom I disagree with, is the same way he looks at me as a child, as loved, as broken, as a sinner, as a person who needs salvation. And so I will begin to look at them and engage with them much differently when I am a kingdom-first person. And it's not going to change the passion that I have about the issue. It may not sway my beliefs, but will definitely change the way that I engage with others. And so here's the thing. This week, as you see something posted on social media or you're thinking about, you know, firing off something or you're around the dinner table and those friends or family come over and that issue starts to emerge, I just want you to stop and pause and ask the very simple question, am I putting the kingdom first? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for, uh, Thank you for this opportunity for us to be able to engage with uh, the world around us. Um, Lord, as we feel in many ways we're being challenged, no matter what our political beliefs are, I think everybody is feeling this challenge in culture of where my place is and how do I interact with it, especially as a Christian. And Lord, um, we want to see this as an opportunity for us to be salt and light in the world, for us to be able to be a witness, for us to be able to be people who ultimately point to you as the solution. And so, Lord God, um, I just pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight, and that we would be kingdom-first people. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, will you guys stand with me? Thank you guys for being here this, uh, this weekend. We uh, look forward to seeing you guys next weekend, and uh, have a great day. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.